1: It was really quite phenomenal to, to get that sort of access to the man who led the whole thing. So he led the church department for the last 10 years of, of East Germany's existence.
2: This is Cold War Conversations. If you're new here, you've come to the right place to listen to first-hand Cold War history accounts. Do make sure you follow us in your podcast app or join our emailing list at coldwarconversations.com When the Berlin Wall came down, the files of the East German secret police, the much-dreaded Stasi, were opened and read, and among the shocking stories revealed was that of the Stasi's infiltration of the Lutheran Church. The Lutheran Church was the only semi-free space in East Germany where those who rebelled against the regime could find a way of living at least a little out of the government's grip. Do you know how much three U.S. dollars is in British pounds? It's 76 pence, which equals about 20 pence per episode if you sign up as a monthly financial supporter of the podcast. Higher amounts are welcome too, but it's very straightforward and you can stop whenever you want. Plus, monthly supporters get the fantastic Cold War Conversations coaster too. Just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate Recent supporters include David Bambury, Daisy Birkenhead, Steve Kerrins, Tim Marks and Holly Mead. Many thanks to all our financial supporters who keep Cold War conversations on the air. If that's not your cup of tea, then leave a written review in Apple Podcasts or share us on social media. Back to today's episode, Elizabeth Braw tells us the real-life cloak and dagger story of how the Stasi infiltrated the churches in East Germany. We welcome Elizabeth to our Cold War conversation. Just before we start, I want to tell you that we have three free copies of Elizabeth's book to give away. So do check out the show notes, which will show as a link in your podcast app for how to win a copy. One of the first questions I wanted to ask is, is: Aside from you know the story hadn't been told before, what, how did your interest in East Germany come about?
1: Well, it started very early in uh, in nineteen eighty eight when I was fourteen years old. So now I'm giving my age away, but my grandparents, who thought I should see something of the world, they had taken me to to West Germany previously and it didn't do much for me uh, so I'm Swedish by nationality and, and West Germany wasn't really that different but then they took me to East Germany including East Berlin and that was really sort of a Damascus experience to see this country that was so close so geographically close but yet so completely different and, and uh, guards and soldiers everywhere and then this particular smell that East Germany had and it was all very fascinating and so uh, this was in 1988 and I resolved to go back which uh, happened to be the next year when uh, when uh, Germany uh, reunited so we were there in the summer of 1988 and it wasn't clear that the war would come down and it came down and then I returned uh, by myself for the reunification and subsequently quite frequently and then of course I lived there.
2: Right, right, and why why was the Stasi particularly interested in the uh, Lutheran Church?
1: so the Stasi, as you know its its uh, mission was to basically keep the country compliant uh, to make sure that there were no uh, major expressions or even minor expressions of opposition against the regime. And and that's why it had all these uh, agents and, 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 and a great number of officers. And the reason it was so interested in East Germanist churches and the Lutheran church in particular is that L- the Lutheran church, so Protestants, uh, was very strong. It, it was um, the uh, country's largest denomination, uh, very strong uh, numerically and also uh, very strong politically. Lutherans were politically active, but they weren't ex- afraid to express their opinions, and so you had this um, really sort of a stronghold of opposition within the country, even as the country was founded, and on top of that of course, uh, uh, these churches had connections abroad, uh, primarily to West Germany, but really around the world, including uh, Western countries, uh, the US, uh, uh, Western European countries. So that was a sort of a major headache for the government, and it couldn't uh, it couldn't completely ban those links because then it would have been totally ostracized internationally. So it had to sort of uh, infiltrate these churches, or not sort of. It had to infiltrate the churches to make sure that uh, the Stasi knew everything that was going on and could prevent expression of, of dissent,
2: right right and I'd, you know I, th- I think what brings this book alive is that amazingly <laughs> you managed to be able to speak to uh, Joachim vegan who was the director of the of the church department of the Stasi how how did you get him to talk
1: uh, it was quite miraculous really so I've started Doing the research for the book and doing uh, initial interviews, uh, thinking that it was uh, almost impossible to, to get to talk to him or, or indeed uh, any of his officers but I, 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 um, I wrote him a um, uh, a letter asking if he would be interested and miraculously he replied and i think and and, and and said that he would be happy to talk to me and I think the reason for that is that uh, i'm not West German and East Germans are are sensitive about West Germans because they, they feel West Germans are, are often condescending or they have prejudices about them. And I'm not East German either, so I don't have uh, that sort of um, uh, uh, baggage either. But I, I know a lot about East Germany. and I think maybe he felt I was a, a neutral observer who would approach the interview without any prejudice. And, and I hope that's what I did.
2: Right, right, and and I'm interested to know. I mean, your first meeting what what was that like? No, you know, with with knowing the sort of reputation of the Stasi and a a senior officer at that as well.
1: It was really quite human. So he had, uh, as Germans often do, he had invited me to his house, and so he lives in in the apartment he has lived in with his wife for. Over four decades near the former Stasi headquarters in in uh, Lichtenberg, and he, so he invited me there. And it's a very modest East German style apartment. And so we, I arrived, and and um, uh, he and his wife offered me coffee. And uh, it was a, it's a, if you can imagine East German apartments with a sort of. Um, uh, furniture that basically all these German apartments, apartments had. His apartment is like that still. And so we sat down in the living room and, and he uh, explained what he would be willing to talk about, which was everything except uh, one thing. And that was that he wouldn't give me the names of agents whose identity has not yet been uh, revealed. Anything else he was willing to talk about. And it was really uh, quite. Uh, phenomenal to to get that sort of access to the man who led the whole thing. So he led the church department for the last ten years of, of East Germany's existence, and and worked in the department for many years previously, and, and was rising through the ranks.
2: Yeah, I mean, inc- absolutely in- incredible, and it and it it makes the book because although you've managed to speak to some of the other unofficial collaborators and you know some some of the other staff hearing from him and also hearing about the technique as to how he recruited and and just his i mean it's almost it's almost like a confession he was 87 i think when you met with him wasn't he
1: well so we started meeting when he was 83 and now he has just turned 87 so we met uh Many times over these years, and for for several ta- for several hours each time. So, yes, I, I think, uh, as you say, it was almost a, like a confessional. And I think it's important for people like him to speak. And 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 the tragedy. Uh, of East Germany's 40-year history is that the people who who's ran the country are not willing to speak because they think that everybody's prejudiced against them. So I think this it's it's um, it's great for me and and, and and I hope for the readers of the book as well, but also for, for future generations to hear from somebody who played such an important role because at 87 years old, he won't be around for much longer.
2: You're, you're absolutely right. And that's one of the objectives of the podcast is to capture these stories of the Cold War before they are are lost and this one is particularly a fascinating one so i I mentioned that he he talks about recruitment techniques i mean this wasn't they weren't working on these pastors or the the these religious leaders through blackmail in the main were they this was the the examples or many of the examples you've got in the book it's uh an active form of collaboration, either from an ideological level or from a material gain level.
1: Yes, that's right. And I think many people, when they think about uh, the countries behind the Iron Curtain, they imagine blackmail and pressure. Um, the, the church department works uh, in a completely different way, at least in, in, um, in for most of East Germany's existence. They, they started with this sort of Stalinist approach where they persecuted uh people but then it was more of a soft glove approach and and um, so I, I help you you help me and it was phenomenally cunning so they had this network of informants who fed them information about other people and they they collected every piece of information you could imagine from from publicly available sources from their existing informants or, or agents you might call them and uh, based on that they got a very good picture of uh, people they might like to approach and so they did that knowing a great deal about them what what they were about what what their opinions were and maybe if they had um, chips on their shoulder or or things that uh, weren't going very well for them or maybe problems in their marriage what have you or, or career um, challenges they knew all of that so they could approach uh, these prospective agents, who were often pastors of of all ranks, from from uh, from lowly junior pastors and, and theology students all the way up to bishops, uh, they could approach them with all that information and tailor the the conversation in such a way that that the, the prospective agent, so the the, the clergyman, felt um, that he was talking to a like minded soul, essentially.
2: Yes, yeah. I mean, it, it it comes across in the book that vegan's approach is certainly not stick. There's a there's a lot of carrot there, and there's a lot of empathy that he uses to get the agents to work for him. It's an interesting study in psychology to some degree.
1: Oh, it is, and and uh, it's so fascinating to see the sort of small things really sometimes that that could convince uh, clergymen to work for for the Stasi. So they wanted goods from the West. That was enough in some cases to to get them to sign on. They wanted career advantages. They wanted to be able to travel to the West. And in some cases, as you mentioned, they were uh, committed communists. They wanted East Germany to survive, but there was a minority of cases. It was mostly about getting personal advantages and to be able to to, Figure out out in in each case what is it that makes a person tick, what are his hang-ups, and then to employ that is is really I think uh, quite impressive and and uh, uh, you know you might say it's it's a it's a very cunning and and evil uh, business, but um, vegan's business was to. Make sure that the Stasi knew everything that was going on in the churches, and they did it very well. And his officers,
2: yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, the, some of the examples you've got in the book. I mean, I, I was you know, quite surprised at how little reward some of these people were looking for. I mean, there's there's one of the informers. I think he he was looking for concert tickets
1: that 's right, yeah, and and small things like that now, that particular pastor was was also a very mediocre academic who wanted the Stasi to essentially uh, make his career for him as a as a theology professor and uh, uh, if the Stasi uh, didn't uh, come through with with the sort of career moves that he wanted, he complained mightily. So <laughs> it's it's not easy running agents because it became, can be quite difficult uh, because it's such a close personal connection. It's it's not transactional, or at least with the with the church department, it wasn't transactional. It was very strong relationships between the agents and and their case officers and. Um, in some cases, that worked very well, and in some cases, the agents were quite needy.
2: Yeah, and you know, in in that example, I think he he was looking for promotion and 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 greater influence. Yet the the challenge the the Stasi had is that the church knew there were some informers in their midst, and by a mediocre uh, priest being moved up, that would immediately be a potential red flag. That ah, he's in the the pay of the Stasi, i guess
1: oh absolutely so uh even in east germany uh, it was a meritocracy to to some extent and and yes the government appointed people but if if a, a terrible academic all of a sudden turned up uh, with a, a chair in theology it uh, was as the occupant of a chair in theology then it would be perfectly clear to everybody that he didn't get it on merit
2: yeah yeah I think one of the one of the most interesting characters in there is um uh, Bambofsky. Uh, can you t- just tell us a little bit about him and and how he was recruited and how he grew in stature as an agent?
0: Ah, mm, the first taste of rare bourbon you finally got your hands on. That's nice. at caskers.com, we make this experience easy.
1: uh, an extremely fascinating agent and a, a flamboyant man. So he, when he um, started working for the Stasi, he was a, um, a traveling preacher. So not yet a, a Lutheran pastor, and his parents had been traveling actors. So he was very much in that sort of, acting mold. And when he when he preached in, in these little parishes around the in these little churches around the country, it was essentially a performance. People loved it. But it wasn't enough action for him, so he um, started working for the church department. And they soon realized that they, uh, after he had um, passed the test on sort of minor assignments, they realized that they could use him to infiltrate Western organizations that smuggled uh, literature uh, to the East. And you'll recall that that was a major activity uh, in the West. Uh, donating money to to um books for people behind the iron curtain and then there were smuggling networks that smuggled them uh to the well, behind the iron curtain and then to to the recipients there was major activity and the kgb in the soviet union couldn't figure out how these uh, smuggling networks organized themselves so when the stasi had bamboski and and he um, uh, made initial sort of uh, Uh, attempts at infiltrating himself uh, with this organization. And and the most successful, the Stasi and the KGB realized that he would be the man who could help them uncover these uh, smuggling operations.
2: Yeah. And, you know, he appeared to have like this easy charm to uh, convince people that he he was credible because he sort of, you know, almost blatantly just walks into the offices of some of these... um, organizations and offers offers his services
1: that's right and and so here is where the stasi was so cunning so christian organizations rely on on uh, mutual trust that's how they operate so if you're a christian organization in west germany and, and the pastor from the east walks in and says i'd love to help you you're not going to challenge uh, his identity or, or his motivation you say oh that's brilliant because it's really hard for us to get into east germany with with these um uh, bring these books into East Germany and, and store them and they have them collected and here is this East German pastor who's, who's volunteering to do it for us and so it was a lot of naivety but that's exactly what the, what the Stasi knew they knew that uh, Western European Christians American Christians were very naive in the way they operated they trusted other Christians and here he was Pastor Barbowski who um, took advantage of that
2: yes yeah yeah in, indeed and I, I think the the other interesting uh piece that i noticed was a uh, was with some of these pastors were sent abroad as well i mean there's the the one example which springs to mind is the guy who was the uh the church journalist
1: yes he was yeah, uh, John Kapisky. that's right uh he was a rare uh pastor agent who was a, a committed socialist and that's that's why uh, he signed up to to work for the stasi so he's uh, and he spoke to me for the book, and we had many many conversations and and like um Wiegand, he invited me to his home and and he told me everything and what's interesting about him is that he felt out of place in in these the sort of church circles in East Germany because he was not a pastor's son uh he didn't come from a religious family uh he came from a, a um uh, um, working families so his parents worked on, on a collective farm um, and but he had decided to become a pastor and he felt out of place and of course the Stasi picked up on that so this officer turned up and said "Well, um, I know you're interested in, in World War II history and they chatted about that and discovered had mutual interests and then uh, after a while uh, kapiske signed up to, to work for the Stasi and he felt that he had with this officer, they had a, a, a strong personal bond, and that they were confidants. And what's interesting is that that wasn't just a show. To this day, they are in touch, which really tells you something about the bonds that, that develop in, in this business.
2: Yeah, I, ge- I guess so. Because I mean, obviously, I'm trying to imagine myself in those situations, and really, your uh, controller, your agent controller, is the only person that you can confide in about what you're doing so that that bond must become very close
1: exactly and and if uh, the relationship has been established not through coercion or or blackmail but uh, with the agent uh, in this case the pastor walking into it and knowing what what he's doing and and doing so willingly then it it really becomes a, a probably the closest human relationship you can have because even the ones that the pastors who were married, the pastor agents who were married, they couldn't talk about this with their wives and uh, in some cases they did and Kapiske did, for example, but most most pastors did not so you've really only got this one person with whom you share everything and that is your case officer
2: and and Kapiska I mean he he was working internationally and I was interested to see the the sort of international assistance that the Stasi gave to other friendly intelligence organizations I mean we we mentioned with uh, Bambovsky and the bible smuggling and that the stasi were very keen to uh score some some points to show the KGB how good they were.
1: That's right and and Kapiska worked internationally uh not uh it wasn't set up that way but it was discovered that he he was just very good at making new contacts and he was a church journalist so he didn't spend most of his career uh in in uh, sort of as a parish priest but but as a church journalist, and, and he travelled around the world, well, mostly uh, uh, in the Warsaw Pact area, but also in other countries, um, and was able to, to just make contact with these people who he met, and, and crucially, he spoke English, which was unusual uh, for East Germans, and so uh, the Stasi, of course, uh, took advantage of that. Why wouldn't they? They, they? they spotted an opportunity, and that's why. That's how he. Uh, happened to um, become sort of their eyes and ears with the Charter 77, uh, even though uh, foreign espionage was really the, the, the domain of, of the HVA, the the Foreign uh, um, Intelligence Agency, the Stasi was able to, to collect information in, in the cases where its agents happened to be abroad. Anyway, and that's what Kapiska did. And, and because he was a pastor, he managed to, to um, create good context within chapter 77 and people spoke to him because again, uh, being a being a pastor engenders trust, and that's what the Stasi was able to exploit and i think that's that's so interesting that that he being this unassuming church journalist was able to get extremely good intelligence i i i doubt many other spies were able to get from charter seven- charter seventy seven
2: yeah i mean charter seventy seven was a very close knit group and for him to be able to penetrate um that group must have been Sort of manner from heaven for the STB the um, the Czech uh, equivalent of, of of the Stasi and what what happened to these agents with the fall of the war
1: that was uh, as you might imagine a very frightening moment so they and the whole church department had obviously been working to prevent this very moment from happening so um uh, because the Stasi knew exactly how things would transpire if if opposition act, act, activities in churches uh, um, got out of control, the Stasi knew they would lead to to mass protests and that could lead to to the sort of upheaval that would bring the country down. And lo and behold, that's what happened in the autumn of uh, 18, 1989. And so when uh, November Came about in that year. It was it was clear that East Germany wouldn't survive, and so anybody who had been working undercover for the Stasi obviously feared what would happen to them. But they didn't fear it as much as you might think, because uh, they had been promised that their identities would be protected, and uh, they would be protected because the Stasi had promised to to destroy all materials relating to them, but the, in in the end things happened so quickly that the Stasi just didn't have time to destroy all its files and that's why we have this phenomenal resource today, the, the Stasi archive at the, at the uh, GELC agency that we are able to consult. It's only a partial uh, record of, of uh, the Stasi's uh, Complete files because the, the officers did manage to destroy many files, but that's just to say that the agents were not as apprehensive or as panicked as as one might think, simply because they were assuming they were counting on the officers destroying their files.
2: Yeah, yeah, and it was interesting reading that um, you know what what a lot of the officers did was concentrate on their their current active agents, so they started with those files. So, trying to find information on sort of uh, activities in the last two years of East Germany is quite difficult.
1: That's right. So, for example, in the case of, of Bambowski, it's it's a phenomenally uh, uh, complete record up until 1986, and then there is nothing. Um, and so. That of course raises the question: What happened in in those final years of, of East Germany? Which agents have not been uncovered? Uh, how many people out there are, are there out there who who have uh, uh, quite dark secrets that that uh, the public would like to, the wider public might like to know about, and we'll never know. But uh, fortunately, we've got the the. Files from the previous years, but just imagine the situation when it became clear to the Stasi uh, that East Germany was not going to survive, and they frantically began shredding files. And, and when uh, when it wasn't enough to shred, they began just ripping them up by hand. Uh, I would have been to, loved to be a fly on the wall to to see that happening uh, as as the country was collapsing around them.
2: Yes, in in indeed, I mean, I've tried shredding uh old bank statements and that takes long enough <laughs> let let alone just shelves and shelves of um of 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 files um now uh, just going back to uh vegan the the head of the um the 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 church department you know you you got quite you know I get the impression that you you got quite close to him i mean you, you know he was lending you books and he was as, as you said at the start he he trusted you to tell his story in an in an accurate way
1: yes he did and i uh, i feel privileged that he trusted me because even if he had wanted to read of the, a draft of of the book he wouldn't have been able to uh, because he doesn't speak english so yeah he trusted me and he actually this is quite some sort of explosive information that he gave me and and really thinks that uh, he hasn't told anybody before, anybody outside the Stasi before, and things that, that are, haven't been known until now. And so he just had to trust me that I would use that information responsibly, and, and uh, I hope I did. And I, I just think it's so important that we preserve this part of East German history for, for posterity, because what we've had so far is... The, the stories from victims of the stasi and and that's very very important but that's only part of the story and and uh, to know how the Stasi operated how the, how the officers went about their their daily work how they organized themselves. Uh, how they planned what they were going to do to achieve their goals, all of that—that's not part of. It's not documented in, in in the files, and obviously, victims wouldn't know any uh, uh, any of that information. So, it's crucial that we know, um, we hear from the officers as well, and and so that's why I, I, I feel extremely privileged that that vegan trusted me. Uh, do,
2: did he give any indication that he he might be concerned as to what his former colleagues would feel about him telling? Telling the story,
1: he didn't, um, and I get the sense—the uh, sense that that they are a, a brotherhood, and and it's uh, and, and where they they are just very good friends uh, still, and I think uh, he felt that he speaks uh, that he spoke for them as well, even though he just told his his own story, but he feels a responsibility for them because he feels that they've been poorly treated uh, by. Post-unification Germany and, and that they've been vilified. Um, so I, I think uh, the things that he told me are things that that uh, he would not be embarrassed to admit to them that uh, he had told me, and it's 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 quite fascinating. So I met him um, as as I mentioned many times over over a number of years and. Uh, a couple of times he had just come back from, from a meeting with his uh, officers, so he was going off to a meeting with his officers. And it's it's really quite human to see here they are now, um, elderly gentlemen, and they still get together. They work together in, in a country that people would call unjust, dictatorial and so forth, but they still have this human bond between them and they, they, they get together to celebrate each other's birthdays and, and – uh, and just to to spend time together.
2: Yeah, and when you were talking to him, what what did he say about the 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 end of the the GDR? Was he bitter about the fact that the 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 socialist project had failed?
1: He was not, uh, because he uh, knew exactly the the unhappiness that was that was spreading around the country across the country and uh, he said that uh, by the summer of 1989 he realized it was over and he said all this talk about you know a thousand year uh, country that was all <laughs> that was all a dream and and uh, it it just couldn't survive he said it was a, it was a good idea but it just couldn't uh, uh, East Germany was a good idea, but it it wasn't meant to survive. So he su- was resigned to the fact that the country had failed. And I think it's so interesting because he probably knew better than most uh, through his work exactly what what. People were thinking, what they were saying, what what they wanted. And and the tragedy for East Germany was that what they wanted was to be completely different from what the re- uh, regime was willing or able to offer them. And so Vigand obviously brought the findings from, from the church department, brought me brought them to the to the government regularly. But even if the government had wanted to act it, to act on them, it wouldn't have been able to, because that would have been doing away with the government itself
2: yeah effectively what they did on the the evening of the ninth of november nineteen eighty nine was yeah exactly what he'd been hearing for years yeah. and it it resulted in the in the end of the country um what, one of the things i found interesting is 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 that transition from east germany you know into the vendor and the reunification and i was fascinated by the by the fact that he he sort of made a career to some degree in by working in real estate and it sort of came to me listening or reading that was that was he applying those same psychological techniques that he applied to recruit his agents in a sales environment and i imagined he was because he he'd learned that persuasiveness and that empathy that works so well in sales
1: well that's an interesting thought. Uh, he probably was was quite good, so but the reality uh, why so many Stasi officers became real estate agents is that it was the only job available to them. so um they were really cast out um when when uh, the stasi hi, this is Rhonda in Virginia, and I support Cold War conversations because I think the work that Ian is doing is critically important.
2: Get the sought-after Cold War Conversations drinks coaster as a thank you, and you'll bask in the warm glow of knowing that you're helping to preserve Cold War history. Just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate to find out more.
1: Cease to exist. And what do you do if you're mid-career or towards the end of your career? And this is the only thing that you know how to do. You're very good at it, but... Uh, your Your employer no longer exists, and your skills are no longer needed in any shape or form so uh, what was needed and what boomed in in in, in those early years of of uh, post uh, unification Germany in the east was uh, real estate because all these east germans hadn 't been able to to buy properties were all of a sudden buying, and the lots was being built and capitalism for for all its shortcomings is i think um, blind to, to ideology. And, and so anybody who wanted to sell real estate could could make a living doing so. And so you had, as a result, all these office, you know, Stasi officers who couldn't find work anywhere else uh, making a living uh, doing a sort of a very capitalist thing, which is to sell real estate.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it, 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 it it's really incredible. I just imagine that a lot of them got jobs in security or or areas like that rather than real estate
1: yes but there are also uh, some really quite sad cases so for example uh Vigant in the book mentions one of his officers who was uh, extremely capable who had studied in the soviet union which is what some of these germans were allowed to do and obviously spoke fluent, fluent russian had a phd and so forth and he couldn't find any sort of jobs after reunification but ended up driving a taxi and you can you can feel the professional pain in Vigan's voice uh, talking about his officer. He he clearly feels responsibility for for these officers um, uh, whom he directed for so many years. And uh, he feels a responsibility for them even now. And it pained him that this very capable man um, had been forced to, to drive a taxi. Now, people will say that's uh, that serves him right because he he served a um, uh, an unjust country but from vegans perspective that it is a tragedy that that uh, a capable uh, intelligent professional um, can't find work
2: yes yes and he uh, the the other well there's so many bits of this book that I found really interesting but and another area was this thing about penalty pensions. So these ex-Stasi officers would, were not awarded their their full pension that they would have been if East Germany had survived and were awarded some sort of penalty pension. So what was that, sort of like a subsistence level?
1: Yes, that's right. So senior uh, government officials, uh, East German government officials, and, and also uh, Stasi officers receive a, a reduced pension and uh, that is essentially a reflection of the fact that that uh, they uh, they are seen as as having participated in in unjust activities and I guess there is some justification to that but uh, so uh, vegan talks about uh, penalty pension because he, he feels um, that it's professionally uh, um, unjust that somebody who has worked his whole life within an organization uh, and done fulfilled his job duties uh, the way they were expected from him that he should not receive pension for having done that work and and this is the the tragedy of those who were part of East Germany uh, uh, who who worked for the government in some way and in, even who didn't work for the government that they spent their whole life assuming that the country would last, because you don't go about your, your your life thinking, well, this country might not last, so I'm not going to care about it. Uh, you have to figure out how to live your life in a country such as it is. And um, and then all of a sudden, it no longer exists, and you have to completely uh, uh, redo your life. And I saw that myself when when I, I was a student uh, in the former East in the early to mid-90s all these middle-aged people who all of a sudden had nothing. Yes, they, they received um, social benefits from the government, but they had worked for, for their whole lives in whatever jobs they had been working in, and all of a sudden those jobs no longer existed. And that, that was uh, their identity. They didn't know what to do with themselves. And, and how do you completely uh, change the, the direction of your life uh, yes, you might choose to do it, but these people—it was imposed on them. And yes, they—I'm sure almost everybody wanted this this new and freer society. But still, it was very, very painful for lots of people, and also the prospect of of never having a, a proper job again.
2: Indeed, in indeed, there's a really strong cast of characters um, in this book, obviously centered around vegan and. What comes across with with you interviewing Vegan and and writing about him is there's much more of a nuanced uh, character there that you would normally expect from what people might imagine as the archetypal Stasi officer.
1: Yes, and and I I I'm, I'm glad to hear that you think that comes across because, uh, yes, most people have this idea that Stasi officers, like KGB officers, like like any uh, secret uh, secret police officers in the East, that they were uh, brutal, that they. Uh, were unsophisticated. Were actually, mm-hmm. uh, well, speaking now only for the church, the Stasi church department. They were not. Um, so they were all uh, working class men, and it's interesting to see uh, what sort of uh, uh, jobs they are trained for be- before becoming Stasi officers. So they were welders. They were, um, they were factory workers. They they were manual workers, but then they were trained as, as Stasi officers, and. They developed this really sophisticated understanding of how, in this case, how churches operated, and it's it's really quite surprising that they managed to do that, not coming from from that sort of world at all, and not having that background. And and so with Vigand, uh, his background was that he, like so many other German uh, Germans his age, he he was um, he had lost his father, so he grew up with with a single mother and they were very poor and he worked as a farm hand. And then uh, one day uh, um, a man came and asked him if he wanted to work for peace. Well, who, who doesn't work, want to work for peace, especially if you come <laughs> from the region of Dresden, which as you know, uh, Dresden was completely bombed out during, <laughs> during World War II. Yeah. So if somebody says, do you want to work for peace? I think we would all say, yeah, I want to work for peace. <laughs> and, and yeah but so people like him um or 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 joachim Wiegand in particular um since you asked about him uh, managed to to develop this this um very sophisticated understanding of both our church's work but also about human nature just simply by by uh, working with people uh, all the time and he he told me about some of the early mistakes he made as a as a young officer and he learned from them and then became uh or improved his his um his game as a result. And and so I think it's really important to see that it's, um, or to understand, and I hope, I hope people understand from the book that uh, the reason that people, uh, especially pastors in, in, in this particular case, worked for the Stasi is that actually officers like Wiegand were able to win them over simply by, uh, by being... Um, uh, Fellow human beings who obviously were able to zero in on on on, on the, the respective pastor's weakness, but um, it was uh, a mix of yes, being an officer, but also develop this relationship with with each person they approached uh, approached, and that's why uh, so many uh, officers and especially vegans. Uh, still has good relationships with with the pastors of I Wrocław. Mean, you could think that the, those pastors would denounce them the moment the, the wall fell. No, they didn't. And so Kapiske, for example, still has is still in contact with with his case officer, as I mentioned. And, and so I think one really touching moment uh, or touching part of, of this story is um the festschrift that was written for vegan's 80th birthday so festschrift is obviously um um an academic uh, tradition where uh, when a major when an academic usually a professor has a major birthday his fellow academics uh, write a book in his honor with you know they write a chapter each and it's called a festschrift well when vegan turned turned 80 his um a number of his former colleagues and former agents got together and published a festschrift for him. I, I think that's such a touching moment. And you could say, oh, these are all, uh, you know, uh, evil people. and Why would you celebrate somebody who who led a Stasi department? But if you look at it from their perspective, uh, these are people who still respect each other, appreciate each other, and especially in this case, uh, respect him. And so he brought this festschrift for, for him.
2: Do you think that he applied some of his techniques on, on you, in the course of the years that you met with him, in order to, you know, get a positive hearing about his story.
1: Well, that's that's a, a question I think anybody would ask themselves. Um, I didn't. I don't think so. He he's not particularly charming. He's a very factual man, and and so I would ask him questions, and he would recount in in a factual manner how uh, how things happened. Um, uh and he he wasn't evasive when i asked him questions the only thing as as i mentioned earlier was the only ground rule he had laid out was that he wouldn't reveal names of people who hadn't already been revealed to be stasi agents and sometimes i i tried to <laughs> to, to to trick him into to uh revealing such names but but he wouldn't with everything else uh he was forthcoming in and explain things in a factual manner. Then I sort of, I went not sort of. Then I went back and, and uh, double checked as much as as, uh, as I could uh, with other people. So, for example, if he had said something, I would then uh, uh, bring it up with vegans, uh, with with Kapiska, to see if if he. Um, Without telling him that vegans had said it i would see I would bring it up with with Kapiske, Kapiske to see if he said something um that that confirmed that and that was uh in every case i, I tried that it was the case and it was even the case when I asked uh, victims such as um Wolf Kurtke was an early victim and he uh he remained in the Stasi sites because he was an opposition uh, minded pastor and uh, uh, he uh, even confirmed some things that Vigand that had said because he had noticed them from from his uh, victim perspective. So um, there is always uh, the risk that he was being deceptive, but um, having dealt a lot with intelligence uh, and intelligence history over the years, I'm I'm, I'm I, uh, as 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 certain as as I think it can be that that. He was honest with me.
2: Yeah, I would. I I wasn't, you know, d- d- doubting your, you know, your ability there. It's just interesting, you, you know, that you you thought that yourself and were trying to use multiple um, sources in order to verify some of the information that he was giving. Yeah, me. and I
1: think it's it's uh, it's something that one should be. Aware oh, that's of. journalism. Yeah, it it? Something <laughs> that one should should be aware of going into. Uh, um, uh, a situation like that, that the, the person might not uh, might want to deceive you, but I felt that that uh, that he did not, and I I think you know at this age he is keen to 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 uh, leave a, a legacy, not leave a legacy, but um, pass on to poster- posterity uh what happened so that there will be some sort of resource also for his family i mean it's difficult for, for families of stasi officers to sit down and say whoa what did you do uh uh in in uh in your career because it's it's uncomfortable and so i think mm-hmm. this this will also uh serve as a as a resource for his own family um and who uh so please i was his son, uh, grandchildren, great grandchildren, who and his son knows a bit more. Of course, but his uh, grandchildren, great grandchildren, don't really know a great deal because it's it's just too uncomfortable to sit down and, and and have these conversations.
2: Yes, yeah. One of one of the most interesting chapters I found was that was the postscript chapter that that talked about you know the, the end of East Germany and. As we said, um, Vigan is a is a very nuanced character, and the story of uh, you know the the basement in the headquarters where there were 30,000 Bibles um, that they'd confiscated and in the dying days of East Germany, he puts them on a train and on trucks to be sent to the Soviet Union.
1: Yeah, that's such a powerful story. So he had all these Bibles that that uh, his department had confiscated because they had Bambovsky, uh, their, their agent who uh, was transporting them, and, and and so part of Bambovsky's job was to uh, reveal to the Stasi and through them to the KGB who the recipients in in the Soviet Union were. Um, so he had to deliver some of the books to them. Well, otherwise, it would have become suspicious. But he also uh, skimmed many of the books. And, and so where, what do you do with books? Well, the, the Stasi uh, put them in its its basement sort of for the time being. And then when 1989 rolled around, it was uh, yeah, it, it had uh, 30,000 Bibles in in the basement. And so vegans had to decide what to do with them. And it's, it's such a human moment where he, he stands there and has 30,000 Bibles. And here's a man who is... He is an atheist uh, to this day and um, uh, and has obviously seen the ugliest face of, of Christianity, where I think that the people he dealt with are, <laughs> it would be very difficult to respect. And yet uh, he doesn't shred the, the Bibles. He sends them to uh, their intended destination, which is really a, a very Human thing to
2: do, yes, yeah, very, very surprising, but very human, Elizabeth. That has been a really interesting chat. I really appreciate you coming on the podcast.
1: Well, thank you very much for having me, and and, uh, I'm glad you enjoyed the book.
2: I did indeed. The book is God's Spies the Stasi's Cold War espionage campaign inside the church there will be links in the show notes Uh, i recommend it it's a a book i i enjoyed and particularly enjoy unknown or little known stories of the cold war and this absolutely um, fits the bill so thank you very much elizabeth for uh putting this together for us if you like what you're hearing sign up to our email list at coldwarconversations.com and we have further photos, videos and information on this episode in our show notes, which will show as a link in your podcast app. Don't forget, if you'd like to get one of those Cold War Conversations coasters help keep us on the air, then head over to coldwarconversations.com slash donate. And if you can't wait for the next episode, do visit our Facebook discussion group where listeners just like you continue to the Cold War Conversation. Just search for Cold War Conversations in Facebook. Thank you very much for listening. It is really appreciated. Goodbye.